Good evening. Uh, Tim's going to be speaking tonight on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. So I'm going to read it now. Uh, feel free to follow along, just listen, or to um, follow along in your Bible or on your phone. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That was exciting. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm crackling a little bit, I think. That's all right. Um, yeah, great to meet you all. If uh, we haven't met before, nice to meet you now. Can you guys hear me okay? How about now? We're just going off this one. Cool. Let's do it. All right. Um, nice to meet you all. My name's Tim. Uh, many of you I do know, but some of you I haven't met yet. That's okay. Uh, welcome. And also thanks for welcoming me, because I don't normally come to 6pm. Uh, with my wife, Naomi and I, we usually go to 10.30, uh, 10am, whatever time it is. <laughs> One of the morning ones, when we don't have to be awake so early, obviously. All right. Uh, having heard God's voice in his word, let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. We pray that you would help us tonight to understand what your word says, to uh, remove from our minds any distractions that will uh, hinder us from hearing clearly, uh, and Lord, may we respond appropriately. Amen. A number of years ago, my family and I visited the Grand Canyon, and it's quite a spectacular view, very memorable, although I'll be honest with you, it was almost 20 years ago, and I can't remember what it looked like in person. What I do remember, though, some small parts of the day when we visited was that the footpaths were, that you walk on to look around the Grand Canyon were mostly loose gravel, and there were no barriers between the footpath and the actual canyon itself. I also remember being an energetic nine-year-old and loose gravel footpaths, running and jumping and sliding for as long as I can, and then my mother yelling at me as I would slide pretty close to the one-mile straight drop to the canyon floor. But looking at a photo of the Grand Canyon, for example, is quite an impressive view to take in. Maybe even impressive enough to cause you to exclaim your amazement out loud. 
That's a real place, by the way. There you go. But a little bit closer to home, and a view that I actually do remember, about a year ago, my wife and I visited Saddleback Mountain for the first time. Uh, and it's quite a drive up the mountain to the top. Has anyone, has anyone been there before, near Claymore? Yeah, it's pretty close, a few of you. But the journey up there, the long drive, was quite, uh, it was very well worth it. And we got to the top, and the view that greeted us was this one. And seeing a view like that in person, since I can actually remember what it looks like, it does remind me about, well, in one sense, how small I am, how insignificant I seem compared to the world that God created. But similarly, in the same vein, it reminds me of how great God is to create something like that. Now, tonight we're going to go on a similar journey, and rather than climbing up a mountain or looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon, we're going to read through the book of Ephesians quite quickly. Uh, but I want to paint the picture and help us to understand that it's almost like ascending a great mountain, or the greatest of mountain ranges that holds at its peak the greatest and most amazing of views. Not a view of Utah or whatever state Grand Canyon's in in America, not a view of the New South Wales south coast, but a view of who God is and what he has done. In the pages of Ephesians, if we were to read it from start to finish, our eyes and hearts would be lifted up and we would savour the breathtaking vista presented before us. As we read from Ephesians 1 to Ephesians 6, we look up, we see the risen Lord Jesus Christ seated at God's right hand in heaven, ruling over all things. We look back in time to God choosing a people for himself before the creation of the world. And we look forward in time as to the future when God brings unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, to when the times reach their fulfillment. And from that view, we also look down to the finer details of our lives and our relationships. In Ephesians, we see how these wonderful and marvellous truths shape and mould our knowledge and understanding of God and His work in His world and how we ought to overflow in thankfulness to Him. Now, having painted that picture, please don't expect a particularly detailed view of this mountain range in the next half an hour. What we're going to do, Lord willing, is go on a very brief fly over the mountains, to put it that way. We'll be pointing out some of the major views, some of the major highlights, as we move quickly through the book as a whole. But what I do want to do this evening is ask a question. And the question is, why should we give thanks to God? Now, for the sake of our time together, I've narrowed it down to just three answers. The first of which, point one, God has adopted us into his family. Now, if you were here this morning, once or twice, you've heard me say this five times now, but please bear with me. It gets, well, you get the director's cut this evening, okay? So, here we go. So, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, if you want to have that open in front of you, we climb the first mountain peak, as it were. Paul, the author, opens the door for us to see, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, every spiritual blessing 
that we have in Christ. And the one that I want to highlight for us this evening is the spiritual blessing of adoption. God has chosen us and adopted us into his family. Have a look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 and following. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Now, when you see the word blessing there, or blessed, when you use that word in your life, what do you mean? Often, I think in our culture, in my experience, I've used that word or seen that word used to just mean something that's nice or good, or kind of like the Christian version of luck. You know, so as Christians, we believe in God's sovereignty over all things, so finding that really convenient parking space wasn't luck, it was a blessing. But Paul uses the word blessing in a very, very different sense. God has given us the greatest and most wonderful of gifts. That's what it means to be blessed. There is nothing in this life that even comes close to comparing to what God has given us. God has freely, mercifully, incredibly chosen a group of people to be holy and blameless. We've been adopted, we've been brought into God's family as his beloved children. And doesn't that just blow your mind? When you think about it, the pure, holy, just and righteous creator of all things, the one who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light, the one who sees all things, who knows all things, even before you and I were born, before we could do anything good or evil, even before he spoke the universe into existence in the beginning, before God said, let there be light, God wanted and deliberately and purposefully chose us to be holy and blameless before him. You were chosen to be his beloved child. And has that eternal, reality-shifting truth sunk down into the deepest, darkest recesses of your heart and truly grabbed hold of you? Is that reality real to you? Or, because of distractions, whether it's uni work, life situation, whatever it is, does it bounce around a bit in your head or get pushed off to the side? Does that truth not have much impact at all on your life and on your relationships? As some of you might know, uh, I started studying at Bible College this year at Moore College in Sydney, and in my New Testament subject, I'm actually studying Ephesians, which is pretty convenient. That's why I actually chose to speak on Ephesians tonight. And sinking deep into one part of God's Word for an extended period of time is a wonderful thing to do. And I would encourage you to do that as often as you're able to. But for me personally, I think it's very easy to get into the habit of treating Ephesians like my textbook, like a piece of writing or literature that I have to analyse and understand so that I can write an essay on it and then pass the subject. 
In fact, were it not for the work of God's Spirit in my heart, all Ephesians would be is a textbook, a piece of writing. Now, if any of that kind of resonates with you, if in your experience you found trying to read God's Word, but it just kind of bounces off you, it doesn't sink in, just goes in one ear and out the other, please don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Pray and read. Read and pray. Pray that God's Spirit would do His work and illuminate His Word in your hearts. Pray that you can say with the psalmist in Psalm 19, God's Word is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. So one of the things I want us to do tonight together is journey up this mountain range to sit and stare in wonder and be moved by the view, to see this wondrous banquet of rich food that God has set before us and invited us to feast on together with Him, and that we would give thanks. What else can we do but be thankful to God for what He has done for us? He loved us, chose us, adopted us into His family as His dearly loved children. But even more amazing than that is that God has done more than that. Which is the second answer to our question. God has united us together. Now, as we read on past chapter 1, we see more of what God has done. He has united two groups of people together in Jesus, Jew and Gentile. So if you have a look with me, open up to Ephesians chapter 2. Maybe you have to turn the page or click the arrow at the bottom of the screen. Chapter 2, verse 12. This is Paul talking to you, the Gentiles. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near, For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. There were two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were God's chosen people, Israel. We follow their story, their history through the Old Testament. But the Gentiles, the nations, it says in verse 12, are separate, or they were separate, excluded, foreigners, without hope, without God. And that was us. That was you and me. We were foreigners to his promise. We had no hope. We did not have God. We had no right whatsoever to expect or even ask for anything otherwise from God. 
We had no grounds to make such a request. At that time, verse 11 and 12 puts it, our situation was completely hopeless. But what changed? Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What changed? The blood of Christ. Jesus' death changed all that. While we were separated, while we were alienated and excluded and alone, Jesus came and died for us. Not just for those who were near, who had God's promises and were called his people, not just for the Jews, but also for those who were far away and his enemies who were in darkness and dead. Us, the Gentiles, the nations. Because of Jesus' death, All Christians everywhere, Jew and Gentile, are united together as one. In verse 15 of chapter 2, we're described as one new humanity. Verse 19, we're fellow members with the believing Jews and members of God's household. In verse 21, we're described as being one building. And in verse 22, one temple where God lives by His Spirit. Many people throughout history have gone and sought to create unity in the name of Jesus, even, ironically, leaving to create new denominations in the name of Christian unity and fellowship. But I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding with that way of thinking. True Christian unity is not something we must create or work to establish, because we already have it. In chapter 2, verse 18, for through him, that is Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father in one spirit. We have unity already. All people, Jew and Gentile, have the same access to the same God in the same way. We have true unity because wherever the biblical gospel of Jesus goes, right relationship is restored. Right relationship with God, but also with each other. And this is one of the major themes of this letter. The gospel of Jesus, that is the proclamation of his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven to rule at God's right hand, has brought unity and fellowship and partnership where once was hostility. Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God in Christ together. And because of that, there is no room for hostility in the church. There are no second-class citizens. A couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife Naomi and I, we went to a wedding that was in Wollongong, just up the road from here, actually. And we had a few hours to kill between the ceremony and the reception. And so... You know, we thought, when you've got a few hours spare and you're not sure what to do, you're dressed up in your wedding clothes, what do you do? We thought, oh, obviously, you go to the beach. And while we were there, we were just sitting around and chilling out, uh, a lady came up to us and struck up a conversation and shared that she was a Jehovah's Witness. And during our conversation, uh, she, she invited us to an event that was happening that evening sort of like a Passover-type thing, kind of like Easter, but she made it very clear it wasn't Easter. 
Um, but it was a celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection, which we said well, it sounds like Easter to us, but anyway. Uh, but she said that there would be uh, some wine and bread there, similar to what we would do for communion or the Lord's Supper. But for her, she said, just wanted to make very clear, it was purely symbolic. She wasn't allowed to eat or drink it. But the bread and the wine was only for a certain type of membership within the Jehovah's Witness organization, and she wasn't going to participate in it. On hearing that, my wife and I shared our sadness with her that she, short, she thought there was a sharp distinction within her version of Christianity, which is very different to the biblical Christianity. But we tried to explain that, no, in God's kingdom, because of what Jesus has done, because of his death, all Christians are united as one. There's no special privilege or particular access to God that some can have and some can't. And even for me, as I was sharing that, I was being encouraged by my own explanation of the gospel, just being reminded of what Jesus has done for us because of exactly this passage. I was far away. I'm not far away anymore because God has brought me near. And that's the second reason that Ephesians gives us, at least in our flyover of the mountains, why we ought to give thanks to God. God has united us together as one. We all have the same access to God in the Holy Spirit because Jesus' death, not only was the death of sin, the death of hostility with God, but also the death of hostility with one another. And intimately linked with both that and our first point of adoption comes our third and final answer this evening. God has called us to changed lives. Because of all that God has done for us, because he has brought us into his family, united us together with one another and with him, Paul says, basically, you must live like it. Now, in the book of Ephesians, there are lots of therefores, and a pretty big and substantial therefore comes at the beginning of chapter 4, where, in one way of thinking, Paul kind of shifts gear a little bit in explaining from chapters 1 to 3 what God has done, to now four to six, what we must do then in response. I mean, there's obviously some overlap between those two things. That's the main kind of two halves of the book. Chapter four, verse one, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Skipping down then to verse 17, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Give thanks to God that he has rescued us from such a destructive way of living, and praise him, give thanks to him again, that he's now given us a new way to live. 
because of what God has already done, saving us from the life that we were once in, futile thinking, darkened, separate, ignorant, insensitive, greedy, impure, and now has united us in the one body and taught us how to live, we should live like it. So Paul says in verse 22 and 24, he talks about taking off the old way of life and putting on the new way of life. A couple of years ago, I used to work on a flower farm, which is the flower with the petals, not the one that comes from wheat, just to clarify. Um, But as part of my regular routine, tiring, long, hot, sweaty days were part and parcel with the job. Even on days like this where it's cold outside, I would simultaneously be cold and hot and sweaty. I still don't know how that works. But one of the joys of the job, as enjoyable as it was, would be coming home and having a nice hot shower. I would take off my sweaty, dirty, smelly, gross, stinky clothes and be washed clean. And then coming out of the shower, I'd be faced with a very difficult decision. Do I put on new, clean clothes or do I put my dirty, sweaty, smelly clothes back on? That's not a real decision, is it? It's a no-brainer. Why would I put on my old clothes? Of course I put on new, clean clothes. The old, sweaty, smelly, dirty, gross clothes are not appropriate for my new status. Being clean. And as Christians, God has bestowed upon us a new status. Verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So, put on your new clothes that match your status. In the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, we read what those new clothes are. We are to speak the truth of the gospel to one another. We work hard in our jobs so that we can provide for each other when we're in need. We build each other up with our words. We are kind and forgiving. And one in particular that I want to focus on as we finish up this evening, chapter 5, verse 4. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And then down chapter 5, verse 19, or the end of verse 18, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God. That has to be one of the great markers of our lives as Christians. Thanksgiving. Giving thanks to God for what he has done for us. And did you notice in verse 20 how strong the language is that Paul uses. He says, always giving thanks for everything. And I think what Paul has in mind here, he doesn't just write that in a vacuum by itself, but he has in mind the everything that God's done for us in the past five chapters. The enormous mountain range that we've very briefly surveyed. God has adopted us into his family. He's joined us with his people. So now, we who are far away have been brought near. Those who are in darkness and dead without hope, we now have God's Holy Spirit living in us. We can call God our Father. We can come to Him freely as one people together 
because of what Jesus has achieved for us. And we can claim the hope of the gospel. Thanks be to God. Does that drive you to your knees in thankfulness and wonder and amazement? Because I think it should. Give thanks always for everything that God has done for us. Now, I suspect that I'm not alone when I say that I don't always thank God for everything He has done. There are times when I'm distracted, when I forget, or I lose focus. And instead of thankfulness, on my lips is grumbling or complaining. And to not give thanks to God for everything He has done is disobedience. Chapter 5, verse 20 is a specific and explicit command to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Now, this does not mean generally just having like the vibe of just being thankful to no one in particular, but no, give thanks to God. And so, not giving thanks to God our Father for what He has done is to live in direct opposition to the way of life that God has called us to. When we don't give thanks to God, we put our old clothes back on. In Romans chapter 1, uh, the very same Paul who wrote this letter, wrote a letter to the church in Rome, explaining the gospel for 16 chapters. And he opens his explanation of the gospel by explaining the sinfulness and wickedness of humanity. He says in chapter 1, which will be up on the screen, For although they, that is, people, knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. As a result of not honouring God and not giving thanks to God, every part of our lives was plunged into darkness and corruption and foolishness. And it's these very things, futility and darkness, that are mentioned there that God has rescued us from in Ephesians chapter 4. Friends, do not go back to what God has rescued us from. Do not insult God by accepting His good and wonderful gifts but not thanking Him for them, by not honouring Him as He ought to be honoured. But give thanks to God the Father, always and for everything, because of what He has done for us, in and through His Son. And what great things He has done for us. God has adopted us into His family through Jesus. He's united us together with His people. He's put to death our hostility. He's brought us near. He's called us to live changed lives because of His great kindness and mercy that we were so, so very far from deserving to receive. And so I'd love to encourage you to continue to meditate on these beautiful words this week. Take some time to slowly and prayerfully read through Ephesians, savouring, feasting, marvelling at the view presented before our eyes and thank God 
for all that He has done for us. Let's do that now, shall we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the mercy you've shown us, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Jesus, that you've brought us into your family, that you've made us your people when we didn't deserve it, and Lord, that you've called us to live new lives. Father, please help us to live lives that are honouring to you and to thank you always and for everything. Amen.